Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done Hello and good evening. Welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Blog Talk Radio Show. NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly and I am your host for this evening. Um, my co-host is Annie, who will be on later, and we are on stand number 3184. I'm excited to introduce to you our special guest this evening. However, first, I'd like to let you know that here at NASCA, we have a single purpose to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse and presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. Two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, we are on scan number 31. If you'd like to be part of the panel this evening or any other evening, Monday through Friday night, please call 646-595-218. And my co-host will meet you back line and ask if you'd like to ask a question or have anything to say to our guests. Uh, we'd love to have you join us and uh, support our guests this evening. So um, we uh, are having an open mic forum. Um, tonight we're having Dr. Jamie Romo from San Diego, an educator, consultant, author, and minister who promotes prevention and healing in childhood sexually abuse particularly abuse by religious authorities um, or in the context of religious settings. A workbook he wrote, Healing the Sexually Abused Heart, is a workbook for survivors, drivers, and supporters, and is an integration of various disciplines that led Jamie to become a Certified Traumatic Incident Reduction Facilitator, or TIR. Jamie explains, well, it is no secret that I am a survivor of clergy abuse. It is a journey of integration, transformation, and application that it is most telling about my accomplishments and the life that I celebrate. Visit his website at www.jaimeromo.org. 
Um, so on these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals, who will assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call and participants. Their trauma-informed perspectives as survivor professionals will help them guide discussions on the issues of childhood abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality. That spring from questions and topics brought to you, brought to us by our listeners. Uh, and everyone's invited to engage on tonight's show. Please visit the NASCA.org website, which is N-A-A-S-C-A.org, um, for more information and for more, more information on our programs. So uh, we do have a caller. Uh, is this Jamie? Um, hi, man. Yes. Oh, hi there. I. I'm sorry. I was pronouncing your name wrong. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. People um, pronounce it that way and spell it just the way I spell it. I don't understand. <laughs> sorry about that. How are you doing this evening? Um, I'm well. I'm actually uh, uh, I'm driving to a location, so I'm fine. It's hands-free, um, but very soon I'll be able to be in one place and take notes. And, but yeah, thank you. I'm here. Yeah. Well, you've been on before and we sure are glad that you're coming back on and uh, I'm going to turn it over to you um, for our show right now. We don't have any other callers, but uh, hopefully soon. And I'm here and anybody that's listening on the other end of it or that gets to listen later on, which I want to let everybody know that again, we're on scan 3184 which means there's 3,184 episodes after tonight that you can listen to, mm. and they are all archived. So wow. you've got plenty to listen to. <laughs> and, yes. Mm. So I'll turn it over, show over to you. Thanks. Well, <clears throat> what What is uh, kind of on my mind at this point is, uh, so I, I, you may know, you know, my background was, you know, clergy sexual abuse with you know, in the Catholic uh, Church, and as, as I, you know, came to deal with that, I, I tried real hard to work within that kind of denomination and and be a resource, and um, felt you know thoroughly rejected, and it was, you know ended up with PTSD, and and so I eventually, and I still have a deep sense of spiritual identity, and and um, I connected with a little congregational church and, you know, very progressive and focused on social justice. And then a registered sex offender showed up because that person had heard that this was a very accepting community. And, uh, and the, the, the church group didn't, you know, they are very, you know, progressive, good, nice people, but they had no, vocabulary no way to really acknowledge the the harm that had happened in their own you know group and and mm-hmm. so things blew up so it became a big deal 16 years ago in 27 2007 and that pulled me in to become kind of a resource and uh, took up a, a formal role in ministry, a uh, minister for healing and healthy environments, but it was really powerful and difficult for me to be in the same room with this person and figure out, you know, what to do and, and how to guide this whole group. Um, 
So all that is background to say here we are 16 years later, and once a year we have this thing called Safe Church Sunday. And Mm. it is uh, this coming Sunday. And and the point is um, intended to be like, hey, let's, let's get rid of the shame that people carry around by their things that have happened to them, particularly sexual abuse. And let's not pretend that this, uh, that abuse doesn't happen in, by uh, church folks and, you know, within families and in other, you know, trusted leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and let's actually um, show that we, we've learned something, um, that we can actually be a resource that, we have good boundaries that we have you know, ways for people to uh, uh, to get support or to get you know some intervention if something's going on you know within this membership or or outside and so like how have we sixteen years later actually become a group that actually does something that, that is not just you know saying, "Wow, that was crazy sixteen years ago." And now me, I've taken up this role, um, like we're done. So yeah, with, with you see a difference in the 16 years? Been spotty, and I guess that's part of what I've, I'm thinking of now is like how hard it is for um, people to be advocates or change agents and sustain it, um, and. You know, initially, there was a lot of attention. There was national attention. A lot of people from across the country called and said, you know, this is a situation. What is your policy? How do, you know, can you come out and do a training and so on when people are in crisis? But when there's not a crisis, then, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, it was raw for some of the members who, had their own experiences of abuse and all of a sudden that got triggered and, 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 uh, you know, in some cases people left and came back a few years later, but there's that strong feeling, you know, whether it's fear or rage, then people take action. Um, Mm -hmm. but that's, so since then, yeah, we've within the congregation. Yeah. There's been, I think, uh, good, good trainings and I think people do feel like, okay, well that's, you know, something that's not a taboo. That's good. And we've had things related to safety, whether they're about internet or whether it's about, you know, elder abuse or all kinds of things. Um, but what, what beyond that, that's, I guess my question. And that's um, once a year or twice a year, I actually preach. And that's, what's going to be the case this Sunday. And I think that's kind of my question to the the group is like, you know, are we there yet? No. Um, how do you go from the idea to the action? And, um, you know, I, I I think it's a topic still that nobody really wants to look at, but um, the mm-hmm. evidence is clear. You know, is I have a slide with uh, you know pictures of Epstein and Bill Cosby and. Uh, Kevin, who's the actor? Um, he's a really good actor. Um, Kevin Spacey, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the 
the football coach uh, Sandusky and the gymnast trainer, you know, that guy Larry, whatever his name was, uh, is that you know there's the, there's some hope in facing this stuff that is unspeakable because then right. there's individuals maybe who are held to account, but um, and I would like to believe that there is like a shifting culture like in in society you know that that more people are uh who are who are either bystanders of abuse are becoming a little bit more aware or willing to not put up with that not support it um as well as like the mm-hmm. the cultural shift of people who um have been quiet about what they've experienced in Maybe what they've seen that they're now willing to stand up and be allies and be advocates because um, I think it's just hard to sustain. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of different movements that are getting you know feel a lot of resistance and you know the reports of abuse and I know the churches, I know the Me Too you know, movement the Me Too movement you know has been a real big thing but for me it's very frustrating because. I think the uh, part of the Me Too movement says Me Too, and it's kind of a period, and that kind of ends the discussion. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm not hearing a whole lot of people go beyond Me Too. Um, it just kind of is a period, and let's go on with you know showing pictures of our dinner. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's kind of what you're talking about, but uh, but and, or I hear a lot of people this that's in the news, and oh, isn't that horrible about child abuse or domestic abuse or you know, whatever the topic of that night, and um, yeah. then, then just go on, you know, and I say, yeah, but what can we do about it, you know, or, um, you know, let's talk about it, let's have a conversation, and a lot of time it just, people just look at you like, what? <laughs> I just told you it was horrible, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and I try to engage them in the conversation, but um, I know with larger groups of people, it's, you know, like with one person, sitting down and having a conversation is hard enough to engage somebody into a conversation about what we could do about it. So um, yeah. how do you do this with a larger group? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, the kind of recent traditional way has been um, groups, you know, class action lawsuits, right? Or, um, you know, journalists who have the resources to investigate and then make things public. And, and there's a shock value to that. And there's, I think, a, um, a seed. I mean, there's something that, that does kind of add up in, a, in public consciousness. Um, but it's, uh, it's hard for people to sustain. I mean, my journey, maybe you know, similar with others, has been at first that was all-consuming. You know, um, and there's that in that healing stage, there's that first level, I think, of rage. And and that's uh, so toxic. And it's an energy. I mean, I uh, I led a lot of press conferences. I led a lot of protests. I, at one point, you know, projected these 40-foot images onto the... Uh, cathedral in LA as well as the one in San Diego. Um, you know, mm-hmm. these are like 
they were kind of um, cathartic, um, and it was a way to, for me to have a sense of like I'm giving this back to you. Um, but after a while, you know, I, I think uh, you know I, I've seen plenty of people who kept with that rage and didn't find ways to um, to do healing. You know, and so that that mm-hmm. became my focus and. I think now there's I've had the opportunity to to integrate uh, my experiences. So I think to be more whole, and that's what I consider healing. So that I'm engaged, uh, but not like with a rage that was before. Mm-hmm. You know, I I've certainly you know, will take action and in, in, in different ways. You know, bring that experience um, so that it can be useful for lots of groups with lots of kinds of trauma. And that's why I think this program and this uh, space, this you know, group of people who have a capacity to, uh, to to be present with others as they're kind of just going through their own healing process is so important. You know? So, But uh, I see a lot of casualties. Yeah, I know. For me, for me, I... Uh... I was uh, um, so afraid of being angry, you know, because in my family, ang- people that were angry were people that hurt other people, you know. So yeah. I turned my anger, anger inwards on myself and uh, became very suicidal, um, self-harming. Uh, I didn't feel like I deserved anything, you know, at all. I <laughs> mean, basically, basic needs, my basic mm-hmm. needs, and uh, I was hospitalized a lot, Um I, it was self, you know, I bring myself to the hospital and said that I don't like dying, but I didn't really want to, you know, mm-hmm. I just wanted the pain to stop and the trauma, you know, because I was in flashbacks, body memories and all that, and didn't really know what was going on, and of course I felt crazy, <laughs> you know, yeah. I finally had somebody that said, you're not crazy, what was done to you was crazy, you're reacting normally mm-hmm. to the crazy situations you were put in, you know, Yeah. and uh you know, that was the first time when I stopped calling myself crazy, I think. Um, I started, you know, yeah. I started healing when uh, when I was able to express some kind of anger about what had been done to me. You know, in a, in yeah. a productive, healthy way, I started uh, speaking out um, when I got away from my son's father in 1985 about domestic violence and then sexual assault. And then um, I also um, ended up meeting a woman um, who... Uh, was a survivor of the prostitution, which is pornography, prostitution, and stripping. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm a survivor of uh, prostitution and uh, pornography. And my mother mm-hmm. was used in stripping. And so um, I started speaking with them, but I was also talking about my biological father because um, he used pornography against me, took pictures, and mm-hmm. also, you know, made me act adult and stuff. And um, so I got I got into being able to talk about the sexual abuse by my biological father, but I still had so much shame around it, and uh, mm-hmm. I didn't really I wasn't really able to get in touch with that at all until I found NASCA and actually Bill. Um, I found him on the internet somehow about 13, 14 years ago, and uh, mm. called him up, <laughs> and we and he had me on the radio, and we, you know. Um, I've been working with uh, NASCA ever since, and uh, it's just, it's, it's, you know, like, 
the whole COVID thing, a lot of people said, oh, that, you know, that that was uh, really difficult. But, you know, uh, the NASCA support group seemed to just be at Bill's house in California. Mm-hmm. And we've got Zoom meetings now, which are all over the world. <laughs> you know, I think COVID yeah. has forced a lot of us to outside the box. Uh, we mm-hmm. can reach a lot more people, you know, over social media and things than we ever could before. But the Me Too thing, yeah, I think, it, puts a period at the end of the sentence, and I, I, um, I'm trying to, you know, network with other people so that we can, we can, uh, well, network and, and get all our information out there, like you said, to be a resource and find our commonalities rather than our differences. Is what I always say. Yeah, that's so so important. Um, I, I guess what I. And on one hand, I was I kind of like want to agree and say, yeah, this is what happens. You know, we have a it's it's a movement that kind of then gets some attention, and then the next big thing becomes where we put our attention, and and we're kind of done with mm-hmm. that other one. And so on on the other hand, I just don't know, and I I think you know it does matter, um, even if we don't see an immediate result an outcome and maybe that's because you know my background was in education I, I I taught middle school and high school and I was administrator and I taught teachers and it was with this understanding that this is a long-term investment and right and, and, and down the road it does matter you know someone uh, may have not been in a place where they could address something directly and there was an example, you know, and that, that often happens where in groups, I mean, professionals use it in like in networking or they get, you know, people who are in the coaching world, they point things out to, to people that they didn't see for themselves. So we learn from mm-hmm. each other. And I think that, that it has been a powerful thing, whether it's me too, or, you know, other um, the ways that people are trying to make change is that, or the twelve-step groups, the support groups. I mean, it's like we we hear someone else who may be a little bit farther along in the healing journey, and that you know resonates in us. We 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 find our own you know next step, um, and so I think it, it does matter. It's, it's hard to see the immediate change. Um, because and I, I think the real policy change and the stuff that really lasts um, comes as after all the kind of the mass, you know, critical mass that, that gets developed in, in a group or in a society. So, and I think that's what's kind of mm-hmm. building is this critical mass. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. There will be well, I know that I was I was speaking out at church. So we got we got a call from a church, and they said it, out in Minneapolis, and they said, well, we'd like you to come out here because we've got um, prostitutes that are walking uh, back and forth in front of our church. There's prostitution, you know, going on out here in our neighborhood, and uh, we'd like to get it out of our neighborhood. <laughs> so the director mm. of the program, who is from New York and moved to Minneapolis, says, well, whose neighborhood would you like to put it in? Mm. Yeah, so um, anyway, we started uh, doing education 
um, and had a deal called Where the Lies Take You. And uh, we mm. were bringing them out to churches and into schools in Minneapolis. And it talked about, you know, like pretty woman and, you know, how you're, mm. you, you know, in prostitution and you meet this wonderful guy and you get married and your whole life is, you know, just wonderful. And, you know, then what the really reality of it all is. And uh, it, uh, it's, yeah. it's very impactful. We would give out um, questionnaires at the beginning, like, do you think that um, people that are, you know, um, opposed to pornography or something like that um, are prudes? And almost everybody put yes. <laughs> but then we gave the same day at the very end of the presentation, and, and all, almost all the answers changed. You know, we'd ask them, mm-hmm. you know, what they thought of the presentation. We'd always give them room to write, you know, what we, what their feedback was and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was very, very interesting. We, and when we went to the churches, I had a lot of survivors come up to me afterwards and say, you know, um, this happened to me or that happened to me or, you know, and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the incest or child abuse or whatever it was being used for restitution. But I can't tell anybody because, you know, mm-hmm. my family is part of the church or you know, the person's a part of a church or whatever, and uh, they felt very isolated or, you know, um, I'm in a small town where, you know, the sheriff mm. and the judge and everybody else is, you know, connected to this person that abused me and I got a chance, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there becomes a lot of complications when you're trying to help people and just let them know that, you know, because I'm AA too and I have a lot of people, you know, and I might not like, like, you know, I won't tell my whole story or anything, but I might say, you know, um, because I was abused as a child or, you know, um, my father insulted me or something like that in, in, when I'm tired, mm-hmm. I have people talk to me afterwards, you know, and mm-hmm. say, boy, I, can I talk to you about this, what you mentioned in the, you know, meeting, mm-hmm. because, you know, I have not been able to feel safe to tell anybody and I just feel like I could tell you, you know, and and Mm. that you're going to tell everybody or that, you know, it's safe to tell you or something like that, you know. And this is the reason why I keep going out drinking or using or, you know, Mm. or I have all these mental health problems because I don't have nobody to talk to about this, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, here's my number and, you know, you kind of feel like you kind of fit into a groove at some point um, where you're supposed to be. You know, people go, what's my purpose? And um, I never really thought I had one <laughs> until I started sharing my story. And now I really feel like I do. You know, um, I've got um, 36 years sober. And I tell you what, when I first walked into a meeting, there was, you know, there was no hope for me. I knew that. <laughs> there was no hope for me yeah. to get sober, you know, and uh I walked through those doors hopeless. I just went there because my friend asked me to come hear her speak. And uh, the only reason I went there. And uh, she asked me if I thought I was an alcoholic when she saw me guzzling out of a bottle. And I says, oh, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm one of those alcoholics who can't be helped. And she's like, oh, what kind of alcoholic is that? <laughs> so I told mm-hmm. her for 33 years before she passed away what kind of alcoholic that was. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think if it had been anything more than um, the only requirement um, be a member in AA is the desire to stop drinking. Um, I don't think yeah. I'm stuck around. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
I was thinking as you were talking how um, there's that idea of attraction up promotion, right? That there's, I think as I know for me when I was initially, you know, just dealing with my rage and wanting to see immediate change, and and it, you know, I wanted. That's why I protested. That I was willing to like shame and you know engage and enrage you know anybody who represented the abuser in that organization. Yeah. And and you know that was not very attractive. It was good for a newspaper you know, or a news clip, but it was toxic for me. And when I hear you say like in a in a twelve step setting to mention, well, yeah, because this happened to me it makes sense that this other behavior became, you know, a coping mechanism. Yeah. It's a symptom. It's not the problem. And I think, you know, the, the, when we do, you know, I think for me, because I've done some healing and it sounds like you've done some healing, but um, those experiences become useful in a way that uh, are more inviting than, you know, just shocking or, you know, somebody else now is, um, like just put off or just like, you know, get triggered with no resources. Yeah. Right. Right. And then I also, um, I put on events, I've got a cultures organization and, um, it's, um, I promoted that, um, through NASCA too. And basically mm-hmm. all it is, is, um, I put on events, um, domestic violence awareness and for child abuse awareness. You know, and I always say, you know, April Child Abuse Awareness Month and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but we need more than one month. We need every day of the year. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. You know, and I know, I know a lot of people, you know, that, that one month we do get to bring about awareness that maybe, you know, wasn't there before. <laughs> you know, but back in the 80s, we were, we were doing uh, Child Abuse Awareness Month in April, too, but it wasn't. It wasn't all there like it is now. I mean, there was no social media back then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh no, internet. Yeah. And uh, yeah. You no, know, so I mean, we've got we've got some you know wider wider range and things are opening up. Um, but there's but there's still so many people that feel so alone. And if anybody is feeling that right now, um, you can go onto the NASCA website and uh, look at her. We've got. Um, state ambassadors and you can look under your state actually you can call anybody that's on that list for ambassadors and i'm the minnesota ambassador and uh, you can call people and uh, i would tell people you never have to be alone again you know if you don't want to be alone you don't have to be because um, i always yeah. think that you know, i thought well i was i felt alone and i was alone um and i think i'd ever be able to talk to anybody about it so you know, mm. my life has drastically changed just because the woman that sponsored me had been an abuse survivor too. And so no matter mm. what, I, you know, I did a lot of stuff that happened to me. And, and she was like, oh, my God, how do you deal with that? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we also had Zoom meetings three, three days a week as well, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and uh, Sundays. And uh, mm. um, you know, people can just go on the NAFTA website and it's right on the front page of the Zoom meeting and you can go on there and mm-hmm. you can be Motorola phone or you can be whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You don't have to eat, 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 put a picture of a bird up there, whatever you want. You know, it's it's totally anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we hope people will talk, but 
you know, there's no pressure, and, and it's um, basically just, you know, talk about what you've been through or what you're dealing with today, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's really, really helpful to have something that's specifically for people that have been through child abuse, you know. Cause, I mean, like, I can go to AA and stuff, and a lot of people don't understand um, the PTSD and the trauma and the, you know, relifting mm. up with just like a, a scent will come along in the air, you know. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't mm-hmm. know stuff that happens, and all of a sudden I've got memories coming, you know. And I'm 61 years old, and I, I first escaped from my biological father when I was 21 and ended up in a, a psychiatric hospital. Um, I couldn't put three words together when I got away from him. Mm. I had a six-month-old belt I was trying to take care of. And mm-hmm. uh, it was not good. <laughs> it was not good at all. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've gone so far from that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, April is uh, Abuse Awareness Month. Is it sex- Sexual Abuse yeah, Awareness, abuse no? Awareness. Child Abuse Awareness. And it's then, both. Oh, it's, it's, it's also with Child Abuse Awareness, and you know, they added Sexual Assault Awareness as well. Mm. And and it's also mental health awareness, right? Um, I think it's I think May is think. mental health awareness. Oh, okay. Well, good enough. Close mm-hmm. together. But you, you know, know the idea of like I said, every the, day needs the one, to be. one leads to the other. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Exactly. And, and, exactly. And, it's all yeah, circular. And and so little by little, and this whole. Uh, you know, understanding of trauma is really, you know, 25 or so years old. I mean, the ACE study came mm-hmm. out in 98, and little by little, people mm-hmm. are learning about it. I was uh, recently on a call. Um, I have a, a, a great opportunity to, uh, to, to participate in a group. It's called the National Association of uh, State mental health program directors and you know that it's a you know government organization that has funded you know trauma-informed care grants across the country and um you know as much as these people are in you know community groups are doing great work to try to build you know more peer support and um certify people as you know counselors and develop an infrastructure for people to be able to pick up a, like it's called 988, like a 911 line, but for mental health and to have that infrastructure. A lot of groups still don't know about the ACE study and, you know, like the, the basis of like, this is what um, happens when the body absorbs so much stress and unresolved trauma without real coping skills or resources. Then it leads to physical health, at least to mental health issues. And, Mm-hmm. That was one thing that it, when you were talking, it, it really jumped out at me. It's like, yeah, the connection between all kinds of abuse and trauma and then mental health you know, illness uh, and the idea of um, illness and wellness, if you hold up those, you know, spell them out and then cover up all the letters except for the first one, it's I and we. And, and so that brings up the mm-hmm. second piece about, um, you know, support groups of, whether they're people who really share the same experience or just, you know, a compassionate place or presence where 
people can show up and, and allow themselves to acknowledge their own, or maybe hear it and speak to it. Um, but that idea of uh, belonging and connection is what helps people to heal. That we oh, connect, reconnect yeah, with our own experience, with our own bodies, mm-hmm. um, acknowledge mm-hmm. whatever's been suppressed, and then kind of reconcile it with like, okay, so now that's been driving me, you know, to do things or to avoid things and, or to behave in a certain way to cope and now acknowledge that. All right. So now what do I want and um, who do I want to be and reconcile that? And, but that happens when we start to connect. Um, So I just want to highlight the, the, the power, the beauty, the value of like the groups, whether you've mentioned on NASCA Mm -hmm. or, or other settings. Um, we need to yeah, belong. Yeah, in 1985, when, when I escaped from uh, um, my um, father, I guess it was 86, um, 85, 86, um, well, I was working with uh, the Batter Women's Shelter and, and speaking with them. And uh, at the same time, uh, the Duluth Batter Women's Shelter here in Minnesota came up with the power and control wheel that's called the Duluth model. And... Um, they came with that, and uh, now they have a whole bunch of different wheels, and they have one for um, um, child abuse and then one for um, positive parenting. They have one for domestic violence, and then they have one for healthy relationships. They have a cultural wheel. They have just a whole bunch of different ones now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that all started, you know, like it's from people, like you said, you know, we had – a support group for better women, and uh, we had an outreach program at the shelter that um, the ones of us that had been in the shelter were going back and helping people, you know, helping women that were in the shelter. And, you know, back in my mother's day, you know, she was being beaten by my biological father um, constantly, you know, even before she married him. And uh, Mm. I'm sure she got married because she was pregnant, you know, is what Mm. she did back then. And she said, you know, Mm -hmm. There were no bad women's shelters to go to. I had three kids, you know. There were no bad mm-hmm. women's shelters mm-hmm. to go to. So what she did is she sent us three kids to Minnesota, and she was in uh, Louisiana, sent us to Minnesota with our babysitter, and uh, asked her why she gave us up when we were little, and she said, because I felt like you were in danger. And mm-hmm. uh, she always said she was a bad mom. She was a bad mom, but before she did, I was able to say, you were not a bad mom. You were a good mom mm-hmm. because – you felt that we were in danger and we were, and you got us, mm-hmm. you know, you did what you could to get us to safety. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at, at great risk, sending your children away when, you know, your husband is on you and the children. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. so, but there were, like she said, there were no better women's cultures. So, yeah, um, we are progressing. Um, we might not realize it, but there, you know, there's a lot of things that, weren't back in 85 when uh, I was working with the Battered Women's Shelter and we were mm-hmm. all talking about abuse, you know. Um, and I, you know, see things year to year that are, you know, improving. Um, you know, there there is more education on so many things, but if you go to um, Google, you can just go, um, Google the um, – Duluth uh, model, or you can uh, even uh, Google um, power and control wheels. And uh, what was the a whole bunch of the first one? 
Did you say the Duluth model? Uh, the, Duluth, the Duluth the Duluth model is what the Duluth model is the um the foundation of the power and control wheels and the first book came out was just the power and control wheel for domestic violence. And then they came out with an equality wheel because people are going, Okay, we know what domestic violence is and you know, a lot of us had been through it, obviously. You know, and then the the staff that was in the shelter um, you know, was saying, well, okay, people know what abuse is now. Uh, how about if we figure out what's healthy relationships and put that on a wheel? And uh, then I was, um, um, I don't know, 15 years ago maybe I, I was looking at it and I saw that they had um, abuse of children and then they had healthy parenting. And uh, there's some other ones on culture and religion and just a bunch of different ones that, Mm-hmm. really can uh, be very helpful tools in explaining, um, you know, like that sexual abuse is not about sex. It's about power and control, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's there's just different um, kinds of things that we can share with each other, you know, through these kinds of shows, through mm-hmm. our social media, through our conversations with our friends and uh, um, people we work with or whatever, you know, there's just, um, a lot of ways to reach out to other people, but I was always afraid to say anything because, you know, I'd be in a group of people and I'd think, well, what would they think of me if they knew this or that about me? Mm. And now I just hang out with people that know about me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't have to hide it anymore, you know, because I, you know, got help and, and the people that know me and are in my life today are the people that are supportive of me because I never really know how to make friends you know, I never really had any friends. <laughs> you know, I was bullied in school and, you know, my grandparents were alcoholics and I had no role models whatsoever. Um, and, you know, we were told, uh, you know, family's everything and, you know, don't trust strangers. So it's like the police right. and the teachers, <laughs> you know, yeah. they help you, <laughs> you know, and uh, keep, you know, keep the secrets and, we did, you know. We didn't know. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I started therapy and I was talking about, like, my grandparents and the, just the dysfunction, not even, you know, the actual talking about my sexual abuse from my biological father and rage and stuff. But, you know, um, he started um, molesting me from infancy till I was 21, off and on, and kept coming back into my life. And I knew I was afraid of him, but I didn't know why. I was, so I was crawling around my floor and my hands on my knees when I was an adult and I was married. My kids, you know, were like young. And uh, my husband would say, what was going on? And I'd say, I don't know, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you were crawling on your hands on your knees and you were in up at the corner and you were all curled in a ball and you were shaking and you were whimpering. You know, I was wow. not. No, you were. And uh, anyway, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And anyway, I ended up finding out that I had MPD, and that was one of my personalities. And so I mm. ended up being locked up in a state hospital and went over to my grandparents' house. And, you know, they gave you a pass on the weekends. And I went over there and asked my grandmother, what was I like when it came to live with you? Because my mom sent me away on my first birthday. And mm. she didn't want to say anything. And then I told her how I, you know, was acting and stuff, and she I said, was I like that when I came to live with you? Well, yeah. And I says, well, didn't mm. you think that was weird? Yeah. Well, mm. 
did you bring me a doctor or anything? Yeah, we did. Well, what did the doctor say? You know, it's like pulling teeth. Well, the doctor said we should never tell you. And I said, why not? Mm. She said, because the doctor said if you didn't know, it wouldn't affect you. I said, oh, obviously it's affecting me. I'm locked up in a state hospital I might never get out of. You know, can you please? Maybe if I know, I can do something or get some help. So anyway, she told me mm. that when I came to live with them, um, the doctor said that my vagina was way too big for a child of my age, and I had already been abused, you know. Mm. And uh, once I found that out, you know, and sharing it with my psychiatrist and my psychologist, you know, I mean, it's like information is so important. Um, yeah. If you have information yeah, yeah. and somebody's asking you, you know, and, and really needing to find out and going to therapy and saying, hey, asking questions, yeah, they might be some hard questions to answer, but I tell you what, if I didn't know that piece, that that was a big piece that fit a lot of the puzzle together for me. Sure. I mean, these things aren't yeah. to talk about, like with family members that might know, you know, something that happened. Well, I don't know if I want to tell you that, you know. I tell you what, tell them because it's a, it's a part of your healing. It can be a big part of your healing. Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate the this that people didn't know and and so they had this idea that um protecting someone was better you know protecting them from knowing something that was terrible Mm -hmm. and and the reality is we know different now we know that you know secrets like that um not knowing is very Mm -hmm. uh, anxiety producing and um Mm -hmm. then people you know try to cope with that that they don't even know, you know what what it is that they're dealing with, um, and 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 the professionals don't really know what's going on. You know, I'm making probably guess. I mean, I know my psychologist knew that I had a lot of trauma because I ended up 31 personality, hmm. and uh, it was a long way back. You know, I mean, 13 mm-hmm. years in Tesla therapy with a psychologist and. Mm-hmm. I mean, that woman was dedicated, <laughs> mm. you know, and mm. 25 years ago, maybe I stopped seeing that one. Matter of fact, she hung in with me until all that was resolved, and then she retired. <laughs> I swear she never mm. retired until, <laughs> until my, wow. that part of my stuff was resolved, yeah. I got ahead of wow. and she said she was going to go travel around the world, and I said, oh, man, I hope huh. you have a great time. <laughs> yeah. What a what a great example of being a, a an ally, you know, somebody who's really walking with someone. Yeah, um, and she was not a survivor, you know, but she mm-hmm. knew about MPD, and that's back that's back years ago, you know. And, uh, and yeah, so um, you know, it does it really depends on. Uh, um, I was in the hospital, and and uh, the psychiatrist says, you know, they can know what's going on, but I'm not. I'm not as special as this at all, and I'm calling these two special this. And there was one, one of the guys was William Percy, who was uh, one of the head psychiatrists with MPD back when. Um, we're talking the 80s. And, uh, and this lady that came along with them, and I didn't, I didn't even, I went into this meeting with a bunch of people, and it came out, and I didn't even know what happened. And that's when they diagnosed me, I guess, when Melters came out. And uh, and so that's when I got my diagnosis, which was much better than the one I had. I had borderline personality disorder. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
basically they kept saying like when they crawl under the table and you know be scared and all that kind of stuff that I was doing it to get attention and I was mm, manipulative yeah. so I used to call myself a border liar <laughs> mm. I'm a border liar you know because it's how I was defined is just doing this to get attention I didn't know why I was doing it you know and uh, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, when I was doing the same things later on, it was like, where did they, you know, she's under the table. She's having a disassociative episode, you know, and then one of her personalities or one of her alters is out. And they would come down and say, hey, are you okay? Are they here? You know, you can just sit here if you want or, you know. And, and it was just a whole different approach. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there are uh, a lot of, Real solid researchers, you know, Gabor Mate and Bruce Perry and Besser van der Kolk and plenty of people who are basically looking at like the the medical model treats symptoms and names things that could be completely wrong or, or just not helpful because they're just dealing with the surface and they're not going to say, you know, well, what's behind this, you know, and how, what led to this, you know, and like coping mechanisms. Yeah that you know, developed and and uh, led to this point. So there is a lot mm-hmm. of progress. And I guess what, I, yeah. what keeps coming back to me is this, um, uh, the connection between um, trauma and fragmentation or splitting and uh, kind of disintegration or, you know, what some people would look at the word as disease as two words, dis ease and right. when and healing is is about connecting and belonging and becoming more whole and reintegrating those different parts mm-hmm. of ourselves um facing to the degree that it's you know presents itself um you know parts that we may have suppressed um or yeah. uh yeah have just you know minimized uh, that keep getting in the way for us of actually being our best self. And so a lot of people say, are you integrated or, you know, there's different terms, whatever I says, well, all I can do is explain it this way. I had a psychologist that was listening, willing to listen to all the personalities or alters, whatever you want to call them parts Mm. um, and hear their stories. Mm. And they didn't have to keep it secret anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and then they all knew each other's stories, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so, uh, but it was very confusing for a while because one of the alters, you know, was reading one that they were journaling and one of the alters was reading this, um, journal that a younger alter had written and, uh, Mm. um, she didn't remember none of the abuse and she only Mm. knew the good times. So she -hmm. thought this younger alter was lying and she knew that younger alter liked Kool-Aid. So she was going to poison her Kool-Aid and, uh, she happened to tell the therapist that, you know, and the therapist explained to her that if she did that, she'd tell herself too. Mm. And it took the therapist forever. She was ready to hospitalize us because <laughs> she couldn't get that altered to understand, you mm. know, that, that it would kill the whole body and everybody that was in the body. <laughs> so, yeah. it, you know, it can be a lot of work for a therapist too to figure out, you know, and then sometimes she'd say, you know, before we leave therapy all the time, she'd say, is everybody safe? If any, you know, you got to sign a safety contract. Anybody that's feeling mm-hmm. unsafe needs to sign. And one alter would come out and sign, and then a whole bunch of other ones would come out and sign too. 
you know, mm. that I had no idea that anybody was, you know, might harm us or might harm me or yeah. whatever, you know. Yeah. But but it's hard to explain um, when you try to have to put terms on everything, you know. Some people are asking yeah. you, well, is that your altar or is that, you know, are you integrated or is that a fragment or, you know, it's like, mm. I don't know. I'm just trying to deal with day to day or moment by moment, you know. Yeah. Um, the uh, this idea of, you know, just each person had a chance to tell the story and be heard. That's mm-hmm. important in a lot of, I mean, for some, it's a good start, I would say. Um, what I'm thinking of is that the the training I got and the practice I have of facilitating sessions, uh, it's called traumatic incident reduction. And, mm-hmm. and uh, part of, a good part of the training and background is for the facilitator just to be um, clear enough of, the, of our own stuff, so we've done our own sessions, mm-hmm. and to right. create a, a safe process for someone else to tell their story and and as and to retell it and to be not interrupted or you know analyzed or you know kind of coached in any way but just to to have the opportunity to to put the pieces back together of you know the, like the first version and the second and the third and however many times it takes to uh, right. to tell the story and and it reintegrates it helps but um, mm-hmm. what you said, you know, this person would uh, would listen, and that's uh, it's, you know, the TIR stuff is is very efficient, um, super effective. But just you know that that shared premise, you know, in, in the case of mm-hmm. you know a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, I mean, they have these uh, licenses and credentials and training. Right. And that's all important. Um, in the TIR model, there you don't have to be a, a licensed therapist or a psychologist, but you have to be a safe container, which means a lot of preparation, and you have to be uh, able to um, follow some rules of facilitation that allow someone else to do that work that right. helps them to get the insight. Um, yeah. And well, I, so I like the one thing you said about repetition, you know, because a lot of people say, well, I already told my story once or, mm. you know, you don't want to hear that again, you know, um, and and I kind of say, you know, is it still bothering you, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, let's let's talk about it again, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because we said it out loud once doesn't mean that, you know, everything is okie dokie, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but it in simple words, you know. And then when I, um, you know, when I uh, found out that, you know, I'd been sexually abused before I was a year old, I was, you know, still going to the same doctor or, or new, no, I wasn't going to say, I was, yeah, I was going to the same doctor. So I called up the doctor's office and um, said, um, would this be in my record? And they said, oh, no, it wouldn't be in your record. Well, here's, here's the inappropriate response. <laughs> I mm. started screaming at the poor us. I can't believe you were so bad. I got all this anger and I just, you know, think back and think, oh, that poor receptionist had nothing to do with it not being my record, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um but, but it just it just came out, you know. 
Um, of course, now, you know, I think, I think a little bit more. People <laughs> probably react much more. Yeah, and I think that's part was, of our you know, development and healing is to be able to, um, you know, know that we've, that's that's where we were and just kind of raging and mm-hmm. reacting. And, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gift of that experience as painful as it is and unpleasant as it is, is that when we do um, find a, a more peace, more, you know, insight and wisdom that we can uh, mm-hmm. have compassion, you know, for ourselves and then for other people. And that's, that's not intellectual process. It's a, Mm-hmm. difficult and but it, it matters so much but yeah now you know if someone else were to go off like that we might you know hopefully be able to not be shaming or you know um blaming right them, but just appreciate understand and help them a little bit yeah you know to get to a peaceful place quicker absolutely absolutely and you know i mean I just, uh, uh, a little over a year ago, I just moved in, into a house. But before that, I was, you know, um, in a situation, assisted living, where I was just getting harassed every single day. And it was just horrible. And uh, mm. um, they got me into this house. And um, they tried to kick me out of there over unjust situation. I'm not getting into it. But if I, if I think I kicked me out of there, it would have been my 20th time homeless. Mm. So my son... My son uh, helped me get a place, and I've never, mm. you know, I said I've never felt better physically, spiritually, emotionally than I have in my whole entire life right now. And uh, mm. that was after I lived here more. And my son said, "Really, mom?" And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "I wonder why that is, you know, because you got a house." And go, "Because I have stability, Rick." I go, "That's something mm. I've never had in my whole entire life is stability." Yeah, you know, but even when I was out there in the most recent, um, well, just because I kept getting sick and stuff too, but I was out in uh, Houston, Texas home in uh, 2010. And uh, I can remember being grateful to get behind a building for five minutes um, to get out of the wind. I mean, I still had gratitude mm. in all kinds of situations, you know, uh, grateful to get out of the wind for five minutes. But on the other hand, knowing that I could stay in there longer than five minutes because mm. I didn't have a dollar in my pocket and I was afraid of getting arrested for vagrancy, <laughs> you know, so um, no matter where I am, I just, I just tell people, you know, um, try to find something to be grateful for. And I get mm. a lot of new people in and stuff. I, I got nothing to be grateful for. And I said, you got food, shelter, and clothing? And no, I say every day I write down three things you're grateful for. I ain't got nothing to be grateful for. I says, well, I'll give you the mm. first thing, food, shelter, and clothing. I said, because there's people that don't even have that. Okay, fine. I'll write it down. <laughs> But sometimes yeah. you purposely have to find something to be grateful for, whether it's a hot day and you can sit under a tree, you know, maybe read a book. There's people that don't have time to do that, you know. People uh, that don't have a car to get to, you know, the, a park to go walk around or see mm-hmm. birds or, you know. I think gratitude is really important. Oh, it's super important. It, it generates actually a, a physical uh, response, you know, the the more positive hormones be start getting generated. Um, but uh, this idea of being grateful, even when things are, have been upsetting and hurtful and so on, 
There's a, a, I don't know that I mentioned or you mentioned in the intro or any time, but my my current regular uh, daytime work is as a hospice chaplain. And, oh. Um, you know, so the thing about hospice for the most part is that um, people are, are dealing with honest, you know, they're honest, you know, who are they? Um, they're honest, you know, what's important. And in sometimes, you know, that's like this beautiful, peaceful kind of like people really appreciate every breath. And, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes people are in despair. And like yeah. recently, uh, I've shared this one song. It's called The Longest Night, a guy named Peter Mayer. Mm-hmm. And the, there's this paradox, you know, the, like, in the middle of something that seems like there's no hope that there's the chance to, to see something new. I mean, so like there's an expression in the, um, it's only when the night is the darkest that you can see the most stars. Right. And so here's Mm. the, the chorus says, um, so like, why is it cursed at the dark, at the, now, the night can seem um, like the longest, or the, I forget the when, when you're waiting for the sun. So why, um, so why not sing to the darkness and the burning stars uh, above? And this idea of gratitude is like gold in the middle of, you know, what seems like impenetrable, um, and. There's a, there's a line like uh, maybe peace lies in a storm, you know maybe the heart of the winter is warm, maybe even the light is born in the darkest night of the year. This idea is like this paradox that mm-hmm. it's it's in these really difficult times when we um, we could notice something that's pretty amazing, which could be hope or it could be, you know, deep wisdom or, or like a sense of becoming our next version of ourself because the last version is carrying so much pain um, and, you know, those ways of, of coping didn't work. Um, mm-hmm. Just, you know, these are like different ways of thinking about, you know, jump-starting this healing process with gratitude. Yeah. And I know a lot of people are like, just, Put on the bright side of things, and it's like that's not really what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, no, um, and, and yeah, some, yeah. It's it's when people in the they feel the pain. That's when mm-hmm. you know when people have this deep like, sense of connection or a sense of mm-hmm. clarity. Um, that maybe get helps people to get to a maybe a brighter insight, but. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the superficial look at the bright side. Um, that doesn't that doesn't hold anything. Mm-mm. I mean, no. and, and that's a coping me, mechanism me, as well. It's, it's like people don't want to hear my pain, and you know, I really noticed the difference between though when I was diagnosed with untreatable inoperable breast cancer, and mm-hmm. uh, um, people constantly, "How are you doing? How's the treatment? How's this? How's that?" Mm. Um, and and that didn't last as long as my mental health issues 
And mm. when I'd go in the psych ward, uh, nobody wanted to talk about it, you know. Nobody wanted to say, how are you doing, you know. Um, mm. You know, are the med- is the medication helping? What are you doing? You know, mm. I mean, people now do because I'm around people that understand it, you know. Um, but but just the difference of, you know, a physical illness as opposed to mm-hmm. a mental health issue, you know, um, is just like black and white. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the way we respond, yeah. you know, um, how can I help you? Um, that's really, you know, that's really hard that you're in that place. You know, just uh, ask questions. Anything I can do to help when, you know, I had breast cancer. People were, you know, um, you know, do, oh, I'll help you with anything you need. You know, my mm-hmm. mental health people acted like it was a disease. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I was like, that. Yeah. I guess there's there's that little by little shift that mm-hmm. um, our mental health is something to take seriously and um, and I would think you know the the link between mental health and um, and understanding some of the unresolved stuff that may mm-hmm. get triggered that may you know produce more you know anxiety or you know, um, it may snowball and and lead to you know anxiety and depression and PTSD and all those things. Um, mm-hmm. That there are symptoms. Well, I think part of you know when they say stop the stigma is a new thing for mental health or whatever, but just the fact they changed you know uh, the terminology from mental illness to mental health um, mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. changes the stigma right there. You know yeah. because anybody can get uh, more mentally healthy. You know, mm-hmm. no matter where you're at, and uh, it, it's a whole different way to look at everything. And you know, I yeah. want to get healthier. I want to get healthier. And and anybody I think on the planet could say, I want to get healthier. You know, how can I get healthier? What can I do to get healthier? And uh, you know, the labels aren't always, uh, you know, helpful either. You know, because when I hit, you know, diagnosed with uh, complex PTSD, and I'm looking at all the diagnostic stuff, you know, I felt really stuck. Wouldn't get a whole lot of, okay, if you're feeling this way or you're doing this or whatever, here's, you know, here's something you could try, you know. Mm. Here's a way to overcome that obstacle. And uh, so I I try to, you know, let people know that, you know, don't focus on the diagnosis. You need a diagnosis to get Mm -hmm. help, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But um, well, the, just like alcoholism, you know, once you say I'm an alcoholic or you understand that you're an alcoholic and then, you know, I would say if all else fails, my grandfather used to say if all else fails, read the directions. So in AA, yeah. I said, well, the directions is the big book, you know. And yeah. You've tried everything else now. <laughs> you know, my grandfather yeah. tried to put something together with all the directions and he knew he could put it together and he couldn't. So he'd go, I got to ask you, go get the instructions, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And I said, I just like that. You go, oh, I got to go get the instructions or I got to go ask somebody for help. You know, you're not weak because you ask people for help that, that have more information. He has been through it or professional, like you said, or, you know, um, we don't have to do it alone again, getting back to that. Yeah. But I think this, uh, like you said, the difference between if someone has uh, like breast cancer or someone has some mental illness that, that is shifting at the same time our our larger system um call it healthcare is 
really about pain management still and and only little by little looking at uh wellness as it relates to you know our, our state of mind and how we manage stress and and that's as much as it goes i mean mostly people do not understand trauma and the impact of it and how right. it um leads to the illness and then so without that understanding people continue to reach symptoms and pathologize um mm-hmm. rather than wellness we don't have a care or a wellness or you know that kind of program mm-hmm. in our system we still have a pain management mm-hmm. system so i know i even have a hard time like like to a yearly physical you know or even go to the emergency room unless something is like severely wrong, you know, um, you know, and just, but that, that's kind of how I see my mental health used to be too. You know, I just mm. kind of let things go, let things go, let get things go until mm. all of a sudden I had to be admitted, you know, or, mm. or that was going to be the end of me. Um, but, but now, you know, I can work every day on, you know, taking time for myself. I, created a meditation area in my yard that I go down mm. and, you know, and I make sure I go down there at least an hour every day. But whenever mm. I need a break, I just go down there and, you know, just sit down there and I got some candles down there and I got, some, you know, and it's too, mm. it was too cold to have uh, flowers down there. So I just went to the doctor and bought me some flowers, you know, <laughs> you mm. know, so I just, just created a space for myself. And even when I was in, like, the assisted living, I would, you know, create, like, one little area, you know, that, that I could just look at and focus on um, to, like, just get away from all the, the craziness that was going on in the building and the way that I was being treated. Um, yeah. How, when I had my service uh, dog, so I was able to take it. You know, he needed to go for a walk, so I had to go for a walk. You know, so it, it gave mm. me a reason to, to go outside and get some fresh air, you know, so... Um, yeah, but you know, I wasn't eating healthy or anything like that because I didn't have the ability. I was given, getting 104 a month and they weren't feeding us hardly anything. They were getting money for mm. these wonderful menus they had on the wall, but they weren't giving us what it was on the wall. And, yeah. uh, and we were never getting that. We were getting like a small hamburger with just hamburger and a bun, like eight French fries. And that was it. And they had these mm. beautiful menus. They showed my daughter, you know, three, you know, home cooked meals a day. And you no know, breakfast was uh, cereal milk, you know, Cheerios, and then mm. the snack was uh, one of those little teeny snack bags, not even a sandwich bag of Cheerios, <laughs> you know. And I was losing weight, and I was sick. I only got 104 a month, but I was trying to supplement my food with going to the Dollar Tree and buying food. Mm. And I didn't want yeah. to tell my kids how bad things were because when I talked to my kids, I wanted to try to keep things up. You know, I didn't get to talk mm-hmm. to them that much, you know, and then a lot of, you know, and then we were locked in for COVID. And so our workers couldn't come in, a family couldn't come in, our friends couldn't come in. And I called my worker and she says, all these places are going downhill because they know the health department won't even come in because <laughs> mm. of COVID. And yeah. so these places were all going downhill and, and they weren't being checked up on, you know. And now a lot of reports are coming out about what's, what was happening in them during COVID. Yeah. And it's really yeah, sad. And, you know, when I first, when I first uh, heard about COVID, I didn't worry about, oh, I can't go to the grocery store. All I could think about is, 
What about the kids that are trapped in their homes or domestic abuse mm. victims that are trapped in their homes that can't get out, you know? Yeah. Um, go to school or, you know, whether they could report before or not, at least maybe somebody would notice something or, you know, mm. be there or they'd have escaped somehow. But, you know, then it was, you know, you could go out and get liquor, but you couldn't drink in a bar. So bring it home. <laughs> you know, yeah. you already got problems, you know. I want to go back to that point about um, about taking care of ourselves. Um, and I'm not saying it exactly the way you mentioned it, I think. But what, what came to me was that um, when we've been, you know, harmed, treated badly, have trauma, I mean, so that my story was, you know, basically abandoned, abused, and wrapped in shame. Right? So things happened mm-hmm. to me. I should have had things that I didn't have, and I internalized that, and and that came to me. You know, uh, but then I kept it, and I kind of abandoned myself, mm-hmm. and I worked hard, and you know, pushed hard, and and that was kind of abusive um, to myself yeah. as well. But as long as I was like younger, I could kind of keep up and, but still wrapped in shame regardless of you know, achievements yeah. or, you know, things that were good. And so that the antidote, mm-hmm. and then I put that on other people as well. Um, but the antidote yeah. was to be present to ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and that's a learning process. But once, like for me, once I realized the damage that I was doing to myself and to other people, uh, and I realized, mm-hmm. like, for me to be more, uh, well, one, happier, healthier, uh, but also repair and stay connected in those relationships, um, I needed to be present and and be good to myself. That was the, the piece. And then acknowledge, you know, that I'm okay and, you know, not perfect, but I, there are some good things I contribute. And mm-hmm. uh, regardless, you know, and maybe... Because I've, I've done some you know, facing things, uh, that I'm, I'm in a better place. You know, I have more resources. I have right. a, a capacity and so on. So, um, a lot of times, yeah, we can focus on like the symptoms um, and not mm-hmm. not get it. Like, so what happened? And then, as a result, now what's my responsibility? What am I going to do? Um, because back to kind of the medical model is, is all about treating the symptoms of the things with kind of a short term. Um, things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to fix the the body and and not help to unpack the stuff that gets the body to the place it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I came to uh, find out that my grandparents were my grandparents because I always thought they were my parents, you know. Because um, mm. I was a year old when I came here, and they just told me they were mm. my parents. So the neighbor told me that um, those aren't your parents or your grandparents. So I came home crying, and my grandma was there, and my grandfather was at work. And I said, they said you're not my parents. And she says, well, we're really not. We're your grandparents. Your mom and dad didn't mm. want you. Your mother was going to adopt you, anybody, anybody in Louisiana who wanted you. So we had to take you. And I mm. had a really nice job, and he had a really nice job, and 
we had to give up all that, and I had to stay home and take care of you two kids. And uh, mm-hmm. he had to get a local job instead of, tr- you know, driving and making all this money. We had to give up a really nine, nice house, move into this old shack, you know, and this is why we don't have money. And, you know, no wonder why I didn't believe I deserved, you know, even my basic needs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and at some point yeah. there's, um, it's it's like a simple, but it's just a, an amazing process when we question, you know, like, is that really true? It's like, because of me, like, mm-hmm. that was the problem that somebody else didn't yeah. have certain things. Um, and and we could sort that out, you know, like, true, okay, let me, let me think and let me feel my way through that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some things feel true. Yeah, I, I did, you know, become, uh, you know, they became responsible and they had to make some adjustments. Okay, that's true. But am, uh, is mm-hmm. it not true, you know, that I'm the problem? Um, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's not true at all. I I was a kid. I had no choice about this. And mm-hmm. um, I was mm-hmm. a, a decent person. And, um, you know, if they're decent people, they're going to take care of people they're connected mm-hmm. to. Um, and it'll yeah. just go back and forth. But yeah. just a question is sometimes those messages yeah. can stay with us a long time. Um Right. Well, I went to Al-Anon, you know, and I used to, I used to think that my, my, um, we were, um, because we were poor, my grandparents drank. And then I realized we were poor because my grandparents drank. It was like, (laughs) I I realized a lot of things like that. And it was like the picture was in backwards. (laughs) And I took the filter out and turned it around and oh boy, everything's just a whole different picture, you know. But I tell a lot of people, they go, well, I just, I don't understand why, you know, I'm still having all these feelings and I don't know how to change or whatever. And I said, well, you're in crisis right now. It's hard to think about those kinds of things, too. Mm. When you're living in crisis and you're just living, you know, like moment to moment is what I was living for a long time. And, and yeah. I didn't have to have to process anything. And so to give yeah. people, you know, to give ourselves permission to just don't you know, take a break and just, you know, sit with yourself and, Realized I had an inner voice, you know, that really a lot of the answers are inside myself. But I had never, you know, had that opportunity. Yeah. Just, you know, so I say prayers, you know, asking for wisdom or, you know, guidance or whatever. And um, meditation is listening for the answer. And the answer might take mm-hmm. a long time to come. But a lot of times mm-hmm. just sitting still and quiet with yourself, you know, because I believe the answers are within ourselves. But yeah, a lot of times it's just cool things out loud um, with somebody else as well, um, you know, like we're doing on the show, um, to say things out loud too can, you know, make it more imprinted in your mind or your life. Yeah, so I think thinking about more people you know, get more comfortable. Yeah, I mean, back to an earlier point about, you know, secrets and not telling. I mean, that was the way that people thought was, a better solution. People used to think all kinds of things mm-hmm. were true that are not true. And, um, and that idea that, you know, they were poor because they drank when that was their coping mm-hmm. mechanism. And, and there are a lot of mm-hmm. coping mechanisms that, that are socially acceptable until people see them as like an extreme, but really, um, you know, that no doubt that they had a lot of their own stuff before you got mm-hmm. there. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's each generation, I think, can learn. Certainly each generation mm-hmm. gets the the unresolved trauma, you know, whether it was ever 
is it or not, you know, that gets passed down to, you know, many generations. And so there's that, but there's, there's also the potential for learning and changing. And, you know, that's what the 12 steps are all about and breaking those cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. But, uh, you know, just as we can have some compassion for, yeah, this stuff happened to me and it makes sense. And this is what I did and it wasn't maybe great. And, Mm -hmm. and now I have, you know, a kind of insight and, and capacity um, that I didn't before. And I can appreciate, I know for myself, you know, with my dad and his deathbed, really um, mm-hmm. sharing stories about his childhood. And you know, we had a whole, he nearly killed us several times. He was a violent mm-hmm. alcoholic. We were very hungry mm-hmm. and all kinds of mess. And I see, oh, yeah, that's how he coped. He, he was a very wounded person. And I could really have a different view, a bigger view of his humanity, mm-hmm. not just the, the hurtful stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I know my grandfather that, must that have had a really bad childhood. Really mm-hmm. bad childhood because every time I say, well, what was your childhood like? He'd say, never mind that. We don't talk about that. He says, let's just, you know, let's just talk about today, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and near his, you know, later years too, he just, he still would never talk about it. And I found out a lot of things that after he passed away, you know, living during the depression and stuff and having to sell um, flowers that the florist was uh, throwing out, you know, um, mm. out on the street to help, you know, raise money to pay rent because his mom had, I don't know how many kids, you know, I still don't mm-hmm. know. And uh, yeah. out selling flowers, they quit school and, you know, mm-hmm. and, I mean, people could really have food. Can you imagine trying to sell flowers on the streets of Minneapolis? Yeah. You know, yeah. rent money up. Yeah, so, you know, but, but he just would not talk about it. He would get angry if you, you know, kind of pushed the point. Um, but I know that a lot of people I talk with, too, um, that they, you know, they have a lot of regrets or whatever. And I said, you know, um, I always think I made the best decisions I could at the time with the information I had. And mm-hmm. I was in a lot of bad and outright lied to, you know. Mm-hmm. So I have to, you know, like you said, I think, too, where you said, I don't know if you said it or not, but forgive myself, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that, that's one thing in uh, um, NASCA, we have a, um, a deal that we say at the end of the, you know, like the 12 steps has like the serenity prayer that mm-hmm. they say at the yeah. end. Well, we have, uh, we have the NASCA, the NASCA prayer in um, this. Please grant me the serenity to stop beating myself up for not doing things perfectly. The courage mm. to forgive myself because I always try my best. And the wisdom to know that I am a good person with a kind heart. Mm. And I love yeah. that. <laughs> and, yeah. And I always try to say on the radio show because I think it's, it's a really good uh, message for us to tell ourselves and to tell each other. Yeah, that is a great message. And, you know, it seems like mm-hmm. a, a simple thing. Um, but, you know, if a person said something like that every day for a couple of weeks, you know, it might start to, yeah. to sink in. It's like, yeah, I, I am mm-hmm. a good person. Yeah, I don't have to be mm-hmm. perfect. And this is, there's actually um, like a whole field of neuropsychoanalysis that looks at where the emotions come from in different parts of the brain and, you know, like to down to the like tiniest section of the brain and 
um, this this one guy named Mark Solms. Um, he's like a very like a leader researcher and all of this. And you know, he basically said, you know, we don't we don't get rid of these old habits, these old ways of thinking or behaving. But what we can do is we can create new pathways that are alongside those old ways. And then eventually, mm-hmm. you know, we, we lean more into um, the new pathways. And um, mm-hmm. so these take a while, you know, saying some of these affirmations again and again to kind of create a new sense of actually that's more true than the other yep. you know, stuff about, you know, that I'm a problem or that I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy or I am helpless and all these things that people naturally, especially as little kids, and internalize because we don't know. Um, other people may say it or we do our best to figure it out, but that's the, the wrong kind of idea that we interpret. Um, so, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds – I would love to to have that. I, I don't have a pen or yeah. anything right now, but it's a great closing. Yeah. 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 And then uh, what I was going to say is, you know, I, I realized, well, like, internal messages I was really telling myself, like, you know, dropping something on the floor, oh, you idiot, or that's really Mm. stupid, or whatever, you know, and so what I did is I got a notebook, and I wrote down all these messages, whether I remember somebody exactly saying it to me, or if I felt that way, you know, um, you know, like, I'm unimportant, I'm worthless, Mm. um, I can't do anything right, you know, those types Mm. of messages, I put them on the left side, I opened up a page and put both things on the left side. And then when I got a page done, I went to the top one. And, you know, instead of, you know, I'm worthless, I wrote I'm worthwhile. And then on the left side, I mm. took a pencil and just drew one line through it. And I did mm-hmm. that on all of them. And I tell you what, I must have filled up 20 pages because I had a lot mm. of negative messages. And and I kept doing that. And then after I got a whole bunch of pages, I went back and started looking at the beginning of, you know, when I first started and stuff, and I could see it shifting over to the right side. But for me, mm. it's really important to write things, write things. Mm-hmm. And that's helped me, writing it down like that and just putting the line through it so I could still see what that old message was and I could see it moving over to the right side. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. bet if I had that notebook now and I pulled it out, everything on that left side wouldn't even be there anymore. Mm. But I made a conscious yeah. effort to figure out what the old messages were that had been told to me or that I believed because of what happened to me. Yeah. And the one like thing I can, exercise. Yeah. One thing I can say is, you know, cause I used to believe that the only reason I was put on this earth was to sexually satisfy people. That was all I got mm. for belief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And I can tell you today, that's not, <laughs> that's not, if you asked me that or said that, I would, I would totally disagree with you and say the reason why, I'm put on this earth is, you know, um, to be grateful that, that I'm still here in spite of everything. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. because of what I would have gone through, um, you know, I can help others. Not that I want anybody to have to go through it to help others because, mm-hmm. you know, I never would say it's, you know, I'm grateful it happened because it made me stronger. I would never say that. I say, you know, I'm stronger because I had to, to survive, <laughs> Mm. Yeah, you know, but yeah, and some some people do people say that. that I can they, help other people in that way. I think yeah. I'm. I think people are so good people 
and can help people regardless of it if they've been through trauma. Yeah, yeah. If you're trauma, um, I mean like trouble, I guess. Yeah, and uh, I'm mindful of the time. I know we're coming close to oh, the yeah. end of the program. So yeah. I wanted to, to – I said that was a great exercise, and I wanted just to add, a, you know, the thought about it. Um, like in a, in a physical setting, like I'm I'm going to run a, a half marathon on Saturday, and mm-hmm. I've run some before, you know, in, in a younger body and um, with more time to train and with less injury. Um, but in any case, you know, it's it's been a process of building up to that. And you know, my point is, like, just on a as, as on a physical level, exercise is something we do over time to uh, sometimes be able to, you know, be able to do things differently. I and, think we're uh, out of time. So that, <laughs> that exercise that you described, you know, like that's good to do over time because then more yeah. of those things are gone. So thank you. Yes. Well, I'm sure glad you're able to come on tonight. And uh, I think we're going to be uh, knocked off here pretty soon, but it, um, I can't, uh, wait till you come back on again, because I know you will. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, could you, you have a wonderful, could read, wonderful evening. And could you read that poem if we have a moment again, the the prayer? The... Um, sure. Um, I can. It's um, please grant me the serenity to stop beating myself up for not doing things perfectly, the courage to forgive myself because I always try my best, and the wisdom to know that I'm a good person with a kind heart. <laughs> I had to say it quick. But you can get a hold of me. I'm the Minnesota ambassador for NASCA. You can call me anytime. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. You have a good evening. Thank you for coming on. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.